a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the place where we revel in wrong think. And boy, I am going to jump in with both feet. We're going to start out today with a little discussion on Jim Crow. I'm sure you've heard that phrase quite often here lately. After all, any state that passes any uh, you know laws clarifying, hey, we want to make it tougher to interfere with or cheat in elections is being accused of implementing the equivalent of Jim Crow laws, which, you know, of course, uh, treat people differently based on race, the color of their skin, separate facilities, separate drinking fountains, separate restrooms. Yeah. I know, to me, it sounds like a lot of hyperbole, but for some folks, this is very, very serious stuff. And on the other hand, for all the talk about the evils of Jim Crow, in some ways, it seems like we are very much on our way to implementing something very similar. No, I'm not talking about the voting laws and talking about things that would make it more difficult to game the election system. I'm talking about uh, the the way that people who uh, are unwoke, (laughs) maybe unvaccinated, unmasked, seem to be destined for second-class citizenship. Great article this morning on LewRockwell.com. This is from Donald Jeffries. Wokeless and second class. And I, I'm not insisting you agree with this, but I think this is a take that, that offers some insights that I don't hear from very many other corners of the various media platforms out there. Donald Jeffrey says America is on the way to instituting a new form of apartheid. Now, this one won't be based on skin color. The new Jim Crow isn't voting laws that logically require a photo ID to prevent fraud. It isn't a convenient historical reference for prominent blacks like Virginia Assistant Governor Justin Fairfax to invoke because he was accused by two credible women of sexual assault. Nobody is racist against anyone with wealth or power, like Fairfax. Lots of average whites may justifiably despise him, but they can't be racist regardless. They don't have the power. He does. Now, Donald Jeffrey says the elite who misrule us have managed to convert the largest elephant in this collapsing country, the massive and growing disparity of wealth, into a racial argument, where rich black celebrities or public officials can claim the system, which has bestowed fantastic favors upon them, is actually against them. Now, By the same argument, the millions of whites who are living paycheck to paycheck or are even homeless have a privilege that these powerful persons of color don't have. It's based on the belief that systemic racism is responsible for all black pathology, despite the most clear and public support of the most extreme Black Lives Matter advocates by the most influential organs of that system. This is a good point. He says, USA Today recently ran one of the most ridiculous stories I've ever seen, which concluded that white supremacy was responsible for all interracial crime. Now, white supremacy, in quotation marks, apparently compels blacks to commit 90% of all interracial crime, including almost all of the crimes against Asians, which have recently been the subject of much attention and, of course, nonsensically attributed to white supremacy. So what exactly does white supremacy even mean? 
You could make the argument that white supremacy predominated as recently as the 1950s in America, but now? Yes, most of our leaders are still white, but doesn't that stand to reason since most of the population still is? And those white leaders are not exactly renowned for any supremacist beliefs. On the contrary, the woke ones hate whites more than the most radical member of the nation of Islam. And the conservative ones do nothing but apologize and backpedal and brag about all the African Americans supposedly flocking to the Republican Party. Now he points out how Major League Baseball recently pulled the All-Star game out of Georgia in response to the state enacting some halfway sensible voting requirements. He says, in our present mad world, black people don't have photo IDs and cannot vote unless someone brings them water. Now, this kind of pandering is embarrassing and condescending. Think, the ridiculous, think of the ridiculous film The Blind Side, where a troubled black youth who just happened to be a huge football player was rescued from his blackness by a woke white family who just happened to be powerful alumni boost, boosters of a nationally successful college football program. Louis Farrakhan and his followers were justifiably outraged over the syrupy demeaning of black families. But modern liberals related to it. It's a great fantasy of theirs to rescue some directionless, directionless black who just needs a properly woke white guiding hand. Very similar to Hollywood celebs adopting children from Africa to exploit in photo ops and then hand off to their nannies behind closed doors. Now, Those of us trying to maintain a classically liberal attitude of tolerance empathy and fairness for all, in the midst of all the authoritarian madness of the one party in power, have already become essentially second-class citizens. If the Orwellian vaccine passport becomes a reality, then we will literally become second-class. He says, I can easily foresee separate seating sections in restaurants for the unvaccinated. Maybe they'll have separate drinking fountains, with no irony. (laughs) Corporate America used to be the bastion of conservatism. Now all the big corporations are politically correct to the core. Look at all the anti-white comments from Coca-Cola recently. As if informed people needed any further reasons not to drink their chemical poison. While Major League Baseball made it known that it too was more concerned with virtue signaling than the almighty profit motive, the NBA and NFL have long been slapping its majority white fan base in the face. Leave aside the open discrimination against white athletes, it is very real, Both sports have a strict quota on white players. When Colin Kaepernick kneeled during the national anthem, the huge white fan base was finally outraged. All black teams? That's cool. Cheering on women beaters, cop beaters, and thieves as long as he can make my team win, baby. But disrespect the flag, as Trump said, fire them. (laughs) Now, Donald Jeffries goes on to say, look, America not only doesn't have any white privilege or white supremacy or any racism against blacks beyond furtive whispers from truly powerless people in trailer parks and the like, it is absolutely obsessed with black people, with making certain they're wildly overrepresented in public life from sports to entertainment to politics, with currying their favor by obsequiously fawning over them as if they were special needs children or rescued animals. Every powerful institution in this systemically racist society of ours cowers to any black threat and almost all give large amounts financially to Black Lives Matter. That's a pretty bizarre thing for the white supremacists running this country to do. And yet, for all the virtue signaling, the majority of blacks remain mired in poverty. Now, Donald Jeffrey says, I've never been called racist by any black person. On the contrary, the many, many blacks I interacted with regularly as a young blue-collar worker and then later on in the IT world seemed to find my perspective refreshing. 
I spoke my mind, and they loved it. I was the only white guest at a couple of black weddings and several black parties. I certainly never analyzed anything from any ivory tower. I don't want blacks to be discriminated against unfairly. I want them to have the same rights as everyone else. I would have passionately supported the civil rights movement if I'd been old enough to do so. I spent a lot of time in my younger years listening with awe to the words of Martin Luther King and honestly investigating his assassination, unlike the vast majority of those on the left. But he says it's now impossible to discuss any subject in this crumbling country without some white virtue signaler or some laughable black public official turning it into a racial issue. And the dynamics of every racial issue are very simple. Whatever the problem is, it is said to especially impact black people. Any so-called debate consists of cries of racism. And the only whites involved are those screaming at the loudest or cucked-out apologetic figures who serve the purpose of being figurative dartboards. We need to have a discussion. Invariably means that whites are all racist and privileged and blacks are still being treated unfairly. He says, I'd like to see someone offer Maxine Waters or Ilhan Omar or Don Lemon or Al Sharpton a huge sum of money if they would submit to a one-hour interview where they could talk about any subject but race. He says, I would actually like to know what these state-approved black leaders think about subjects beside race. I don't think they could do it. And this probably holds true for the vast majority of black people in America today who have been indoctrinated to think their entire being and purpose in life revolves exclusively around them being black, even if half or more of their genetic makeup is from some other ethnicity. If only black leaders were more like the great Cynthia McKinney or even the usually sensible but still mainstream conservative Candace Owens. He says the one party in power has succeeded in labeling all opposition to them as racist or alternately as the irresponsible product of conspiracy theorists. And the white supremacists are toothless groups like the Proud Boys or unspecified and largely fictional armed militia groups or competitors to the monopolistic social media platforms run by white virtue signalers like Parler. Why aren't the most powerful white people White supremacists, he asks. Bill Gates can't wait to vaccinate the poor people in Africa. No woke person will ever call him a white supremacist. The most powerful forces in our society, mostly whites who reign supreme, aren't talking to each other when they call out racism. That message is strictly for poor and working class whites. You know, the ones Bob Dylan talked about in his song, Only a Pawn in Their Game? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Oh, I'm pushing the envelope today. I know, I can can already feel there's some discomfort setting in. This is an article from Donald Jeffries, Wokeless and Second Class. And it, I think, accurately describes a new type of apartheid that is being implemented right under our noses. And it's the people who refuse to get woke, you know, to, to chant in unison with, uh, with whoever's waving the rainbow flag or whatever. Uh, if you don't do it, yeah, you can be canceled. You are, you know, targeted for destruction. By the way, this could also apply to people who are not vaccinated and so forth. The, the, the possibilities are endless. 
But it's very clear that corporate America is on board and they are being used as the punisher by government so that government can ostensibly say, hey, we're not violating anybody's rights. If these companies don't want to do business with you, if this bank says, no, we can't handle your money because you're not sufficiently woke, well, you know, that's totally their right to do. Still trying to think, what uh, what is the appropriate response to this? Just because, you know, okay, it was a private business, but when you partner with government like that, it seems to me that uh, you're no longer truly a private business or private property. I'm not sure what to call it, but I'll work on it. Let's go back to Donald Jeffrey's article. He talks about how the truly powerful, like Bill Gates, nobody would ever call him a white supremacist. The only people who get accused of racism are usually poor and working class whites. And by the way, the same dynamic applies in the climate change agenda. Greta Thunberg and Al Gore, they're not, they aren't talking to BP executives about the greatest environmental disaster of our times. No, they aren't blasting big corporations for spewing smoke into the air. They're focusing on the emissions produced from your vehicle. They're worried about your hot baths and meat eating. The goal is to lower the standard of living for the masses to the level seen in China, their favorite despotic regime. That's the essence of the new normal. They don't care about water or air pollution. It isn't about ecology. It's about controlling behavior. Widening the disparity of wealth. Bill Gates blocking out the sun like Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. Our leaders are all beyond satire. Now, Donald Jeffrey says, I hate writing so much about blacks and the racism game. But any observer of the American scene has to respond to reality. And the reality is that identity politics consists of making certain people victims who are often powerful and, more accurately, victimizers, and making often powerless people racists who are somehow keeping down people who appear to be above them on the economic ladder. It's impossible to ignore race when our entire culture is permeated by it. And he says this culture is driven by supposed black interests, black complaints, and black experience. If it wasn't for Africa, for American slavery, rather, and Jim Crow laws, very little history would be talked about at all in polite society. In fact, he says recently a black professor somewhere charged that trees are racist. No, that's not a joke. And yes, all white authority figures took it quite seriously as they take seriously allegations that math and basic grammar are also racist. There's literally no reason to stop this absurd categorizing of anything and everything as racist because there will never be any blowback. And once recklessly calling anyone or anything racist became universally acceptable in America 2.0, was it any surprise that the LGBT, LGBTQ plus movement followed suit? Everything is racism mantra beget the 57 genders agenda that now rivals it for media and political attention. Now, just in case you're wondering, there are two biological sexes. The fact that this is a controversial statement tells you all you need to know about the state of our society. But conservatives sit largely silent as transgender story hour turns into banning the terms boy, girl, man, woman, mother, father. Feminists sift through politically correct wreckage to figure out how to respond to a movement that equates any male who decides to identify as female with their most outspoken sisters. What purpose indeed does feminism serve if women are no longer a biological reality, but merely an identity that makes gender fluid? 
What do women's rights mean if every man can be a woman? By the way, that's something to consider when you see how vigorously corporate America, among others, is pushing back against the idea of keeping biologically born males from identifying as a woman and competing in women's sports. I guess, you know, we're we're just expected, hey, you know, stop clinging to reality and believe what you're told. I don't think I can do that. Donald Jeffrey says these transgender activists, like racial obsessives, claiming rope and brown paper bags are racist, have no reason to curtail their lunacy. Thus, the popular new consensus that men can menstruate and have babies. Yeah, that's a real thing. A panel of experts from Harvard recently concluded not all who give birth are women. Well, who am I to argue with Harvard experts? I didn't even graduate from community college. He says if parents permitting their preschooler to decide what gender they want to be, or in some cases actively encouraging a change, isn't child abuse, then what would be? If medical professionals agreeing to inject children with gender blockers that prevent the natural development of hormones isn't criminal negligence, then what would be? As far back as 2018, experts, that's in quotation marks, declared that anatomy didn't determine gender. CNN recently stated that it wasn't possible to know a person's gender identity at birth. How can you have a meaningful dialogue with such people? or with alleged educators that claim trees and good grammar, are racist. Donald Jeffrey says, I picture every corporate boardroom now with disproportionate black and persons of color represented and at least one transgender at the table to ensure that logical pronouns aren't used. The cowering white executives nod and stutter and keep their huge year-end bonuses foremost in their minds. Meanwhile, no amount of pressure appears capable of getting them to pay their workers a living wage or restore their lost benefits. So, he says, we add this maddeningly false racial and gender dystopia to the never-ending virus and the unconstitutional lockdown and wind up with a thoroughly unappetizing stew. He says, I guess it's a good thing my working career was brought to an involuntary halt a few years ago. People like me are virtually unemployable now. In this mindless authoritarian climate, I would undoubtedly have said or done something to get me canceled. The woke inmates have taken over the American asylum. Those of us who insist on pointing out that none of these demented emperors are wearing any clothes will become increasingly ostracized, banned and fact-checked on social media, shunned by the establishment press, court historians, and tenured academics pressured into obedience by friends and family, relegated to watching They Live again, or appropriate Twilight Zone episodes for comfort, shouting, don't get on the ship, or Soylent Green is people. Our warnings went unheeded, and he says the evil bastards won. I know, that's uh, he gave us the whole trailer full of uh, what he was thinking about this, but I think Donald Jeffries is speaking to a truth that a lot of us see but maybe aren't sure exactly how to put into words or something that we may not even dare to say out loud because it's pretty politically incorrect. How dare he challenge this? I come back to what he pointed out earlier on. We talked about this in the first segment. What are you supposed to make of it when when people like Oprah Winfrey, who I think could arguably be held up as one of the most successful people in human history, the amazing empire that she has built 
And I think there's real talent on her part. And yet we're supposed to believe because of the color of her skin. Oh, no, 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 Brian. Actually, she is a part of a very oppressed and, and held down minority. I don't get it. And I just, I guess, you know, maybe I'm being recalcitrant here. Maybe I'm the guy who's, who's just having trouble playing well with others. But I'm not willing to turn loose of reality or to disavow reality for the sake of political expediency. I'm not going to go out there and provoke people. But I will decline their insistence that I join in their fantasy. And I expect I shall be pretty unpopular along with everybody else who feels that way. Eh, I feel like I'm in good company. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. If you have endured thus far our journey into wrong think, I think we're over the roughest part of the road here. I still have some stuff that uh, that may, you know, cause a little bit of uh, apprehension, kind of like going over that first drop on the roller coaster, but I think I think that was the big one for the first couple of segments. Let's jump into something that I think is maybe a little more positive. One of the bright spots in an otherwise stark landscape of this past year's COVID restrictions has been some of the creative types of pushback and resistance that have been taking place. Saw a wonderful article from Anders Koskin, and this was on intellectualtakeout.org, the toilet paper flagship, creative resistance to pandemic restrictions. And since I'm guessing that the fact you're listening to this program indicates you're a more freedom-minded individual, I thought you would find this interesting. He says, for over a year now, governments across the world have introduced and enforced a series of arbitrary restrictions on their citizens and their businesses, but not without a certain degree of pushback. Some small businesses in Germany have found a creative way to maneuver around the diktats of Chancellor Angela Merkel and other government leaders. The Washington Post reports that many small family-owned stores have begun selling essential items in order to stay open and allow their customers an unencumbered shopping experience. So while one might not expect to find toilet paper and food for sale at a clothing store, this is exactly the approach that the family-run clothing store Modehaus Kuhn, I'm saying it wrong, but it's in German, Modehaus Kuhn has taken. Now it has rebranded itself as a toilet paper flagship store, which continues to sell clothes as well. We did it to remain open and generate sales that are basically essential for our survival, store manager Johannes Kuhn told The Post. On the other hand, it's satire that's simply a criticism of the injustices of government decisions. Now, Kuhn went on to call it absurd that the government enforces hygiene measures on some stores while giving a free pass to others. He now has other small clothing stores in Germany calling him up to ask his advice on bypassing government restrictions. While so-called essential businesses have been allowed to operate almost as normal, smaller stores and those whose products are deemed unimportant have been subject to an entirely different set of restrictions. Those businesses which get the essential label from the government are typically big-box chain stores which would have survived the pandemic anyway, thanks to brand recognition and the ease of online shopping from home. The smaller mom-and-pop stores suffer the most under economic shutdowns. 
In the United States, the definition of an essential business has always been contentious, especially when so-called non-essential businesses were closed. The main question, of course, remains essential to whom? And I like how Anders Koskinen then puts the question back on us. So, you the reader, whom would you deem unessential? The waitress struggling to pay her college tuition? Or perhaps the independent bookstore owner who just put his life savings into his business? How about the janitor whose family depends on his income for food on the table? Which of these people should be denied the dignity of work and the income that is the fruit of their efforts? As Mike Rowe, host of the Dirty Jobs television series, said last year, I don't think there is any such thing as a non-essential worker. Now, Anders Koskinen says some will say that we should be grateful that stores now, for the most part, operate under restrictions rather than being shut down completely. But he says any gratitude in this regard should be directed at God for our divinely given rights and not towards our elected leaders who have violated those rights for the better part of a year, only to back off slightly as of late. Besides, he says, Americans may still have need of the motorhouse coon model style of uh, creative resistance to the arbitrariness of government. For example, the CDC director has called for Michigan to be locked down once again as COVID cases surge in the state. So the United States may not be done with the unprecedented infringement of its citizens' freedoms. As such, it is important that demonstrations such as motorhouse coons not only take place but they're shared widely. He says not only do they give people the courage to stage their own little protests against the infringement of their rights, they also allow us to laugh at our arbitrary leaders. And we could all use a laugh these days, and perhaps the funny stories as these shake out will help us to remember the tragedies imposed by our government during the pandemic. So from the economic consequences of government-mandated shutdowns to the immense increase of deaths of despair caused by the same, the damage to American society and to nations across the world has not been limited to the mayhem and death inflicted by COVID-19 itself. Hopefully, voters will remember how their politicians' actions or their leaders' actions affected their lives and will vote in the next election cycle to throw out any politician who has no respect for their God-given rights. In the meantime, though, he says we should all find ways to fit some sort of toilet paper flagship store into our lives. We need to keep these stories alive. I don't know why, but uh, I just, I love the spirit of resistance. I think it's principled resistance, so this isn't just mindless, let's go dump tea in the party, or tea in the harbor, rather. This isn't just a tea party. This is, uh, this is how people continue to innovate and come up with ways to get around those who feel like, I just, I have to control you. If I'm not controlling you, something is terribly wrong. All right, shifting gears, here's one that uh, I've been marveling over this for, for the last few months, and that's, isn't it curious that the people who keep urging other people, trust the science, tend to be the ones who are being most dogmatic? In fact, the very words, trust the science, believe the science, that's dogma. And I'm not saying this because I know everything and you don't. I don't, but I do believe asking questions is a good thing even if a scientist is saying, this is what I recommend. Yale Osowski has an excellent article. This was published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Does the CDC's mask mandate for two-year-old children make sense? This is an actual look at the science. 
He says, in the age of COVID, flying carries significant risks for you and your family. Part of that is the virus itself, but increasingly parents are being kicked off of flights because their young children are refusing to wear face masks. Across the U.S. and Canada, hundreds of stories have been highlighted in which families have been physically removed from flights because their toddlers did not want to wear masks. And by the way, he backs this up with links to stories about uh, Southwest, JetBlue, American Airlines, Spirit Airlines, United. Practically every U.S. airline has had a version of the horror story of a young family being escorted off a flight because a kid didn't want to wear a mask. There have been cases where single mothers with up to six children have been booted, even kids who were eating before the flight took off. Worse, many of these airlines permanently ban passengers who refuse to comply with this policy, even children. Now, he says, this particularly concerns me, as I will be taking an international flight soon back to the U.S. with my two-year-old. She's never been forced to wear a mask, whether in daycare or travel in Europe, and I doubt she will leave it tight and snug for the nine-hour long haul. Should I already have my lawyer on speed dial? While many airlines have had similar policies for months, these rules are now based on an administrative order published by the Centers for Disease Control January 29th of this year, following one of the bevy of executive orders signed by President Joe Biden in his first few days in office. While Biden's order requires masks for domestic and international travel, he leaves the specific guidelines to the CDC. But even though the CDC has been stringent on its rule of masks for all persons to and above... This directly contradicts what we know about COVID-19 and children. So what exactly does the science say? Well, at present, the justifications for requiring young children to be masked is that either they're at risk for COVID or at risk for being carriers of the virus. Now, on the first point, all of the available data we have from multiple studies in dozens of countries shows that children are not particularly at risk for hospitalization or death. The American Academy of Pediatrics estimates that 13.4% of COVID cases have been adolescent children under 18. Mostly in the older age range, young children fared better. As of December 2020, when we had the most complete age breakdown, children 0 to 4 represented only 1.3% of all COVID cases in the United States, 212,879. Just over 2% of those were hospitalized, that's 0.02% in total, and 52 in total had died. For statewide data, California, with the most number of cases in the country, uh, so far there have only been two COVID deaths recorded for children under five. And while every death related to COVID is indeed tragic, especially when it relates to young children, just keep in mind the relative risk is incredibly low. Now, what about young children spreading the disease to parents and grandparents? Well, a CDC study conducted in Rhode Island found, this was back in July of 2020, found that the opening of of child care centers did not lead to a spread of the coronavirus. And another Icelandic study from December also found that young children were half as likely to catch and spread the virus and that infected adults pose a greater danger to children than kids do to adults. I think I've seen this borne out in my wife's school as well, where I don't think there's been a single case that could be tracked to a kid infecting somebody else with COVID. We'll come back to this article, just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yes, we are taking a look at the science. Now, unlike some people, I'm not going to insist that you follow the science and you believe it and stop asking these stupid questions, you conspiracy nut. Because I want you to ask questions. I actually think it's a good idea. I'm sharing this article from Yale Osowski. And this is uh, about whether we should be uh, questioning the CDC's mass mandate for two-year-olds. Does it make sense? What does the science say? He talked about how uh, an, an Icelandic study back in December found young children were half as likely to catch and spread the virus. Infected adults actually, it found, pose a greater danger to children than kids do to adults. There's also a, wide, a wide-ranging study conducted in Israel published back in February that found that young people under 20 carry 63% less viral load than adults, meaning they have less propensity to spread the virus, and that number's even lower among toddlers. So while the headlines would have us believe otherwise with all the available data that we have now, young children under six are not significant spreaders of COVID, even with the potential variants. Beyond that, Stanford's Dr. Dr. J. Bhattacharya, citing studies from Sweden as well as the World Health Organization, recommended in the Wall Street Journal that we avoid masking children up until at least 11 considering the low risk of infection and the very real hazard of stunting kids' developmental progress. Now, Bhattacharya was one of the many prominent medical experts present, along with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, Martin Koldorf of Harvard, and Scott Atlas of Stanford, at the COVID roundtable held last month by Florida Governor Rick DeSantis. By the way, that roundtable, the video of that, is being blocked actively on YouTube. Don't ask me why. Something about, well, this, uh, this may be misinformation. It's, this counters or offers, offers thoughts that are in, in contravention to the accepted narrative or something. Bottom line is, these medical professionals, experts, people who may actually have something of value to offer on this subject are considered too dangerous for you to even be exposed to their ideas. I don't think that speaks well for those who claim that uh, the science and the truth is on their side. All of those uh, experts, by the way, advised against masking children for various health reasons, though their views have now been banned from YouTube for even discussing the topic. That should tell you a little bit something about uh, the battle for your mind. Bans aside... The medical literature largely supports Bhattacharya's claims that the benefits of masking children are small to none while the costs are high. So how then can the CDC continue to mandate that toddlers wear masks on long travel journeys, especially when they cause a fraction of the risk of of an adult? These rules seem to have been written by people who do not have young children and who do not understand why it's problematic. To leave the toddler mask mandate in place severely limits the freedom of children and young families to travel, and it stands against the scientific and medical facts. So Yale Osowski says, if there was ever a time to allow science to inform our judgments, it's now. Otherwise, this is nothing more than pandemic theater. 
I'm just going to let that one sink in for a moment. I think he's absolutely correct. And I do think that uh, largely it is pandemic theater. And if you're not, uh, if you're not wearing the mask, you're not uh, showing up properly dressed for the rehearsal. All right, one final note here. This was a really great one from uh, Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. You've heard all the warnings about the dangers of toxic masculinity. Not very many people seem to be talking about the downside of boys failing to become men. And she makes the case that there is a study showing that a manly father is good for children. Here's what Annie Holmquist has to say. She says, in an age where feminism seems to rule, there's a lot of pressure for fathers to start acting softer and more feminine in dealing with their children. Not a trace of that uh, toxic masculinity should come through. She says, perhaps that's why we see increasing condemnation of competition. Everyone gets a participation trophy or dangerous activities like winter sledding. Little Johnny could hit a tree. Or allowing children to stray a few blocks from home without adult supervision. Or they might be kidnapped. Why would we want parents, particularly fathers, to stress the traditionally masculine virtues of competition and adventure to their children while we're trying to root out masculine, toxic masculinity out of society? Well, Annie Holmquist says, well, this mindset is subtly promoted by today's culture. It's now being challenged by a new study published in the journal Psychology of Men and Masculinities. Now, the study lists the stereotypical masculine characteristics, competitive, daring, adventurous, dominant, aggressive, courageous, and standing up to pressure as positive traits. And fathers who demonstrated these were rated as showing good parenting behavior. Researchers expressed surprise at this link between masculine qualities and good parenting. The study's lead author, Sarah Shop Sullivan, acknowledged, however, that fathers who see themselves as competitive and adventurous and the other masculine traits, tended to be really engaged with their kids. Now, maybe that's surprising to those living in a woke, politically correct feminist society, but it shouldn't be to those who look at fathers through history. Take Teddy Roosevelt, for example. In a letter to a friend in late 1900, Roosevelt explained how he had been a sickly child, likely the type who would have been teased and labeled a sissy by other boys his age. His father helped him through this difficult childhood, not only through gentleness, but also through his manly character. This is uh, how Roosevelt explained, quote, I was fortunate enough in having a father whom I've always been able to regard as an ideal man. It sounds a little like Kant to say that I, what I'm going to say, but he really did combine the strength and courage and will and energy of the strongest man with the tenderness, cleanness, and purity of a woman. He not only took great and untiring care of me, some of my earliest remembrances of nights when he would walk up and down with me for an hour at a time in his arms when I was a wretched mite suffering acutely with asthma. But he also most wisely refused to coddle me and made me feel that I must force myself to hold my own with other boys and prepare to do the rough work of the world. End quote. Now, Roosevelt's father was manly, daring, and courageous, and passed these traits on to his son, enabling him to stand firm under pressure. And it was through these manly traits that Roosevelt's father fostered respect and love for himself in the heart of his son. Again, this is Teddy Roosevelt. I cannot say he ever put it into words, but he certainly gave me the feeling that I was always to be both decent and manly, and that if I were manly, nobody would laugh at my being decent. In all my childhood, he never laid hand on me but once. 
but I always knew perfectly well that in case it all in case it became necessary, he would not have the slightest hesitancy in doing so again. And alike from my love and respect, and in a certain sense my fear of him, I would have hated and dreaded beyond measure to have him know that I had been guilty of a lie or cruelty or of bullying or of uncleanness or cowardice. End quote. So however much one may despise or adore Roosevelt's politics, Annie Holmquist says one has to admit that he led an impressive life, showing courage on the battlefield, exhibiting both a strong intellect and a strong work ethic, and demonstrating leadership from the highest office in the land. Would he have achieved such success if his father had coddled him, refusing to balance the tender care of his sickly son with his manly qualities? It seems doubtful. She says, we have today what authors Warren Farrell and John Gray call a boy crisis, where boys fail to become men, struggle in school, get in trouble, and have difficulty finding wives. Would we see that crisis begin to be resolved if we encouraged fathers to practice and model their manly virtues once again, showing not only love and gentleness, but courage, competitiveness, and an adventurous spirit as well? I really like her take. Annie Holmquist has just got such a, she has a very well-read perspective, but she also, uh, I think, just is, is so grounded in common sense. You'll find a link to this in the show notes, which you will find at thebrianheidshow.com. Look, I'm feeling the stress these days. I'm looking around me, and, you know, there, there's times when I feel like, all right, all right, no, no, everything's cool. We're, we've, we've had a little bit of wobble, but things are starting to stabilize. And there's times where it feels like, I'm, I'm you know, you know how a top wobbles just before it uh, finally topples out of control? I feel like we're right there on that, that verge of, of wobbling out of control. There's a lot that we don't have control over. But the one thing we always have control over is how we will respond to particular circumstances or, or situations. Now is the time to really dial in your ability to control your response. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed, that doesn't mean that the world has won and succeeded in beating you down. It just means the struggle goes on. If you get anything from this program, I hope it's the sense that, uh, first of all, you're not crazy. And secondly, you're not alone. That's why we get together and revel in wrong think. This is the Brian Hyde Show.